Ron Carlos and this is By High No Limit. In this episode, I'm speaking to Ricardo Autobahn of the Cuban Boys. Ricardo kicks off explaining how the Cuban Boys all started. 1997, the summer of 97, I was on holiday from university. And I said, what everybody did, did back then in the mornings was to check the teletext for music news. Um, and somebody had written a letter into Planet Sound saying, we're starting a fanzine. Is anybody out there likes 80s music, synthesized music, Gary Newman, ZTT, that sort of thing. So I sent them a tape of the uh, songs that myself and my sister had been recording since childhood on a little four-track at home. And those people starting the fanzine were two uh, reprobates called Screen B and BL Underwood. And they lived in Eastbourne. And we sort of sparked up a a friendship and a, a sort of an interaction in these early days of the internet as well. To the point that a year later, I dug out an old track I had recorded. And I sent it to screen and I said, why don't we form a band and release this? And it was a song called uh, Cuban Boy, due to the fact that the sample was from a song called Cuban Boy. And that was the summer of 1998. We sent a John Peel. We come up with the name Cuban Boys off the top of our heads in absence of anything better. And we rose to superstardom very, very quickly. That's excellent. And your use of teletext um, was the Planet Sound. Was that when it was headed up by Stephen Eastwood at the time? It very much was indeed. Um, yeah, we, we thought, obviously, the internet was in its embryonic phase then, but we, 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 our campaign was based around the teletext mainly. We, we'd met on the teletext. And, you know, we, it, the music pages were very important for keeping track of things. And the, the interaction was much greater than the internet was back then. So th- you wrote into the letters page, and you could see it the next day on screen, and you would get reactions and interactions from other people. So we based the entire Cuban Boys ethos around writing a load of fake letters to Stephen at Planet Sound under various names. We worked out how to trick the computer into sending emails with various different uh, responses so that you could fake your identity, as it were. So every day we'd send in umpteen emails saying, oh, we heard this direct song on John Peel. Oh, has anybody heard about the Cuban boys? Oh, somebody has been at school has been talking about the Cuban boys and so on and so forth. And every day one would get printed or every couple of days and it snowballed into this, this mental sort of um, uh, chaos whereby we, we, Stephen, Stephen knew what was going on, I believe. Maybe not at first, but fairly soon he, he worked, he twigged that we were gaming the system. And he got us on to do a, a full kind of interview thing, despite the fact we'd not released any records and all we were really doing was sending CDs to John Peel, who was playing them happily. <laughs> but no, our, our proudest, our first proudest achievement was getting that sort of five or six page interview spread on, on Planet Sound without, uh, without really being a real band. The, the first interview we ever did uh, with EMI on board was for Teletext because we wanted to celebrate our roots and they see the whole, you know, you're there with these huge offices and this great machine going around you going, yeah, we'd like to be interviewed by Teletext first, please. And they 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 support us. They let us do it. They, they seem to be baffled by the whole thing. I don't know if they really understood 
the uh, importance of the teletext uh, system to new music back then. They, they, and frankly, they didn't understand anything back then, quite frankly. No, that was no. when the time Napster was coming in and uh, they had no clue what was going on. It's called Conicenti vs Intelligentsia and it came about when my cat died. And the evening she died, I, to cheer myself up, I found this sample off the internet and I did this little tune. And we expanded it into a full length, three minute piece. And we sent it to Peely, just as a sort of almost work in progress, just to entertain him, just to give him something to listen to. And he played it on air and we got this extraordinary reaction from the, from the listeners. Most requested song since God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols, so he, so he claimed on air. To the extent that, as a direct response of Peely playing it, we inexplicably signed to EMI Records. I'm relaxing that. No, no clues, no clues. Okay. You've got to say it yourself. Okay, uh, Cognoscentia versus Intelligentsia. Good enough. I thank think. you. Uh, got, applause, got to, thank you. Cheers. I uh, got to number four. We we did the Christmas top of the pops and um, S Club Seven and Steps were sat opposite us, glowering at us for beating them in the charts. <laughs> uh, they won. We won the battle, but they won the war. Well, it was, uh, it was certainly uh, quite remarkable because at the time, obviously, the Christmas number one was still uh, quite, um, still, still quite a coveted prize. Yeah, I mean, um, at some point about October or November, EMI suggested they um, they put the single back to January because it's a it's a it's a very slack time for singles in January, and you can almost usually hype your way to the top of the charts. But then Joe Wiley, Joe Wiley never gets a mention in our archive. It's always about John Peel, but Joe Wiley actually played it every day. Uh, at lunchtime, and that inspired EMI to push the button and do it mm. in Christmas week. Mm. So, how did that song actually come about? Um, was it a uh, was it the Dancing Hamster uh, internet yeah, page on GeoCities? Yeah, that was it. Um, February '99. So, yeah, we'd done our first Peel session, and we thought we were going to be on pop stars, and we hadn't quite become pop stars yet. Although this was our career was going at a breakneck pace, so. Um, <laughs> We weren't. We shouldn't really have become pop stars by then. But um, no, Jenny, my sister, said, "Have you seen this website?" And yeah, we, we thought it was very funny. And then I realised that you know, back in those old days, um, it would save the WAV samples or the MP3 samples on on screen to a little cache memory on your computer, and which was very easy to get to. So I plucked the sample out, put it in the uh, Cubase Studio program we had, and then we just sat there for about ten minutes, dicking around basically. With this sample, and it, it made us laugh an enormous amount. We thought it was a very funny idea, uh, and it just sort of it, it made no sense, really. It, all those film samples that are in it, they they don't mean anything. It was just us trying things out and seeing what happened. News for you now. So Cliff Richards' hopes of a number one hit this Christmas. He's been number one for two weeks. He'd I have know. To hang on for good, maybe this days. week, but it's under threat, and this is where the threat is coming from: a group of dancing hamsters. <laughs> In a sign of the times, it all started on the internet. This is what you can see if you log on to this particular web page. That soundtrack was so well liked, the entrepreneurs behind it have said, hey, let's make a pop record. Let's remix it and turn it into this. What computers were you using back in the day for that? Was that just uh, PCs? Yeah, just a PC. I'd, I'd had an Atari ST for many years with a little plug-in sampler on the side. The reason we sampled uh, Cuban Boy in the first place because it was the only thing this sampler would actually accept. It could sample like two seconds of audio and the loop 
on Cuban Boy was just under two seconds, so it, it was a technical matter. But by <laughs> then, we got the family had got their first internet connected PC in in summer of '97, and it had like a Sound Blaster 16 card on it, or something like that. So <laughs> the hamster dance, I mean, the hamster sample was really lo-fi anyway. But all the musical samples on it and the film samples they were all like 8k or something like that they're really crunchy lo-fi samples purely because of the limitations of the technology we had mm-hmm. yeah that's it so was that your first alliance with computers or were you uh were you sort of like um playing with computers before you uh got got into experimenting with music oh yeah we, i mean the atari st spread that that, that started got that in 87 I got the Atari ST. And this is interesting. Uh, bear with me. It's interesting. We moved ha- the, when we were kids, me and my sister, Jenny, uh, our family moved house in summer of 87, so we couldn't go on holiday. And to placate me and Jenny, our parents bought us presents. And she, I got an Atari ST, and Jenny got a little Yamaha, tiny Yamaha keyboard. And that was the first time I'd ever started playing music. So that Atari ST and that tiny little Yamaha keyboard that we got for not going on holiday really sort of sparked the whole musical career about 12 years before it actually happened oh that, that's brilliant yeah because it was a bit the perfect synergy really isn't it a keyboard and mm. and and a, and, a, and a computer as well um i've been reliably informed by a mutual friend of ours called reese that you um it wasn't your first dalliance with a microcomputer though no i know what you're aiming for here you're aiming for the fact i wrote a game for the zx spectrum aren't you <laughs> i could be do go on <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we had a certain spectrum in the mid '80s, and we had you know, the Quill and the Illustrator, and you start messing around with those. In an, in, again, like the music, it's just you're trying things out and just doing stupid ideas. So I, I ended up almost accidentally writing an entire game, which was called the Bimbles. It was a parody of the Wombles. Bearing in mind, I was a child version. I was a child. This isn't high art. This isn't high satire. It's just a child writing a terrible computer game. It, purely by accident, I, I I finished again, and I thought, well, I've seen it crash, and inexplicably, uh, it, Derek Brewster and the Crash Adventure Burgers reviewed it and gave it seventy nine percent, which is about seventy nine percent more than it was worth, quite frankly. I, it was it made me a celebrity at school for about a week. So, uh, can, can you can you still find that game? Is that on the Z, uh, ZX archive or anything like that? It is. It's around. Some, I've definitely seen it, and it, it, uh, I, I've definitely been to look for it. And it, I, I have downloaded it and played it an emulator. And it, it, it is cool, but. Um, it's it's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a solution to it printed as well because somebody wrote to me saying I don't know how to do this game, so I sent the solution to them. And um, the solution that's printed on the internet is the point I'm gradually approaching. It's something that I I have written in somebody in a letter to somebody about forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and it says it also says somewhere on the internet that the game can't be completed due to a bug. But I don't know. I, I don't think I've <laughs> got that far in it. <laughs> well, it lacked, lacked proper playtesting back at the time, but then uh, I suppose you could adapt it to uh, to get to the end screen anyway. So, um, yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah. But fast forwarding back to uh, your time at, at you know at the Cuban Boys, it must be absolutely incredible. What, what does it actually feel like to get uh, signed by a major record label? Is it as uh, is it as rock star as, as I think it is? You don't really appreciate it at the time. That's the thing about the music business and subsequent projects I've done because I did the Eurovision some years later and we did um, me and my friend did a record with Glenn Campbell a few years later as well and all these things you look back and think wow that must have been exciting but at the time you never really you never really enjoy it as much as you should because there's, you know, there's everyday life continues to go on around you so even though you're on your way to London to sign a record deal with EMI you're still trying to think oh I've got to make some money somewhere I've got to 
go back to my job. I've got to sort out something with the house or something like that. All the things were still buzzing around your head. You never really sink into it enough to enjoy what's going on. It still felt amazing. And, you know, you're telling people, oh, you were signed to EMI Records. It's a big deal. And people were impressed. But it doesn't. It never really felt like the uh, cinema experience that you always thought it was going to be. I, I guess, um, yeah, when, when you're in the cut and thrust of it all, it all go, goes past quite quickly. But do you have any yeah. sort of do you have any sort of showbiz stories from uh, when you, you know, when you were performing? Glorious memories. Well, let's see. Uh, we did. Well, we did Top of the Pops. It never got shown because um, it, oh, no. it, was, it was Christmas week. So they only ever showed the number one record at the Christmas chart. And then by the time Top of the Pops had sort of returned from his Christmas break, we plummeted down the charts. But no, we met all sorts of people there. They were also all seemed very excited to meet us as well, which is exciting. Yeah, Jamie Thinkson, the world's tallest man. And uh, I held a door open for somebody from Eiffel 65 of Blue Dabadee fame. Yes, uh, yeah, that, that rings a bell. S Club 7. S Club 7, we remember S Club 7. We were sat there in the Top of the Pop star bar opposite S Club 7. And um, our press officer came over to us and said, uh, would you like to do an interview with uh, Top of the Pop spin-off programme? And we said, no, not really. And S Club 7 looked aghast. They didn't realise you were allowed to turn things down. They they did everything. They did everything they were told. And here were we, these young punk upstarts with our novelty record, saying, no, we won't, don't want to do any interviews. Was there any sort of like artistic message that you were sort of like trying to convey as as an end game? Because it came across obviously as a as a as a novelty record, but the the, the effort and the production values that you put in are, are highly original. Well, thank you very much. There was this idea when we start things deteriorated artistically quite quickly because we realised all the samples we were using were very difficult to clear. We ended up having to re-record samples and recreate them and things like that. But the idea for our album, which uh, was called Eastwood after Stephen Eastwood himself. Um, he, he deserved he deserved better, to be honest. It's not a very good album. But the idea of the album is that we we're going to go through the 20th century and we were going to sample things chrono- chronologically through this this sort of hour of music. And the last song on side two was going to be what we imagined the Christmas number one would be, the Millennium. Mm-hmm. And it was the Hampson Dance, of course. And it was, it was going to be this inane 20-minute version that was just round and round and round and round and round and stupid. Happily, we thought to edit it down, and inexplicably, it almost became the Millennium Number One, despite being originally conceived as a pastiche of the Millennium Number One. If you see what I mean, uh, the um, the serial number of your um, of of your record, uh, you um, on 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 the I, I noticed the um, you thanked Stephen Eastwood. Actually, you acknowledged him on the on on the centre sticker of of the um, of, of the forty five. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, on the oh my god, they killed Kenny single. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was just wondering about the serial numbers because they were like, the, the serial number that was FU triple oh six. I wonder what the FU stood for. Uh, no, that <laughs> that was not that was not a a, a a rude joke on our behalf. That was just merely the name of the record label for us records. Obviously, John Peel played a, a big part of the festive fifty. I think you not only once did you get featured twice in his fifth. Festive 50? We we're, were actually in the Festive 50 loads. I can't remember how many times we got in with our assorted crackpot ideas, but we had two number ones in the Festive 50, mm-hmm. which is uh, quite a uh, feather in one's cap, really. It, it's the sort of thing we're quite proud of. It's, it's mm-hmm. one of the great milestones we achieved. Number one in the Festive 50 twice. Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at the Festive 50 we were in in 99, and we're ahead of some legends of indie music, Hefner, Gorky's, all the 
big nerves are there. And all also, the behemoths. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're all there, and we're there perched at the top. And it, it's 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 uh, it, it's it's almost I'm most proud of it, and I'm most infuriated that not many no nobody still remembers us. We we're very forgotten, and we should be uh, celebrated and carried around the streets aloft. Quite frankly, uh, <laughs> for the um, success we had. Why well, why do you feel that's the case though? Is it you know, is it just um is it just that everything moved moved on uh very quickly musically? Did you see a sea change in, in the music scene when, when your record was released, or does that happen to every artist? What essentially the problem there's many problems that you can look at in retrospect. I mean, having a Christmas hit is always bad because it kind of gets lost and people forget about it unless it's Christmassy. The uh, having the Christmas hit on the millennium is also awkward because it's not a 90s record. It's not a noughties record. So when they do the greatest, it's the 90s, it gets ignored. When they do the greatest, it's the noughties, it gets ignored. They, they might have ignored it anyway, but, you know, that's the reason. And then when we sort of came back with the second single, we were troubled by the, the lack of money we'd earned because of all the money had gone to Roger Miller, who the sample was from. So we did an original song for our second single, uh, which was a mistake. And it, it sort of, it, it all sort of fell apart at that point. Yeah, the record could be said we're not going to put the single out, but we are going to put the album out instead, and we'll 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 see if that'll kickstart Cube Boys again. Number twenty, it's down two for Robbie Williams. She's the one, and it's only us at nineteen. A new entry, various artists for the Children's Promise. It's only rock and roll. Eighteen's a new entry, DJ Luck and MC Neat. A little bit of luck, and at seventeen, down ten, progress. The Boy Wonder and everybody. 16, falling eight places, Len, steal my sunshine. Falling four at 15, Macy Gray, I try. Sliding eight at 14, Wamdu Project, King of My Castle. Down three at 13, R. Kelly, if I could turn back the hands of time. And down three at 12, Boyzone, every day I love you. This week's 11, sliding six, is Alice DJ, back in my life. And now, here's the Christmas. I only Finger boys, kiss when the sun don't shine. Down seven. Falling five, William Orbit and Barber's Adagio for strings. It's a new entry, Mr. Hanky, the Christmas Pooh. Steps, double A side, a new entry, say you'll be mine and better the devil you know. Artful Dodger, down four, rewind. When the cross ain't false, false, five. Club 7, you're my number one and two in a million, a new entry. A new entry, Cuban boys, Cognoscenti versus Intelligentsia, the hamster tune. John Lennon, back in the chart with Imagine. A place after three weeks at number one, Cliff Richard, the Millennium Prayer. Win the entire UK Top 40 next on Radio 1 as part of Dance Anthems with Dave Pierce. That's after the last Christmas number one of the Millennium. And it's a band who now have had four number one singles in 1999. Just Wear it again two weeks at the top in April. If I let you go, number one in August. What my life would be. 
another number one and still on the chart this week at number 28, Flying Without Wings. Now they've done it again for Christmas 1999 with the fourth single of their career and the fourth to enter at number one. It's Westlife who become the first... I always put my love of stats down to the charts in the 80s, watching things climb and fall and, 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 and what have you. I think it was a, about the mid-90s. I'm trying to think, 95? By then, the, the, you know, they, they'd started this target marketing. You'd, you'd fill in a little postcard you got with your CD single and send it off. And then when the next singles came out, they'd send you a postcard to tell you when it was in the shops. Oh, so yeah. everybody would go out and buy it in the week of release. Yeah. And you'd end up with these high new entries that would then drift down the charts. Now, remember, yeah. there's a week in the chart. This is chart chat. This is chart trivia boring dull and dullness um but there was a week in the charts I'm, i can't remember it must have been 95 when on the bible by deuce was listed on the chart as the highest climber but it hadn't climbed it just stayed where it was but because it had increased in sales it was the highest climber and i looked at the entire chart from one to 100 and every single record had gone down because of records coming in high and that was when everything started to get a bit uh tedious you mentioned earlier on about your eurovision um, oh, I've got the, uh, can you see me? Can you see me disc there? <laughs> yep. So yeah, you're, you're showing me. Is that the red one or the gold one that you got there? The gold one is a, red one is a. I don't know what it's. I don't know what it signifies actually, but it's for, it's for the um, Eurovision song. It was 2006, sometime after the Cuban Boys. We'd sort of split up because nothing was happening, um, and uh, a guy called Daz Samson got in touch with me just purely out of chance of the internet because he had had an idea for a record and. My Cuban boy's history made him think that I was the man for the job. So we struck up this working un- friendship, uh, which led through a few crackpot novelty records in the early noughties to, at some point at the end of 2005, the Eurovision people phoning up and saying, have you guys got anything? And lo and behold, we did this silly uh, kids rap record. And they absolutely went for it, a bundle. They loved it. Um, so... The, the the show who was on it was there was, some, there was a guy out of Blue was one of the other contestants Anthony Costa from Blue was one of the other contestants Kim Marsh was one of the other contestants another singer was a couple of girls from a Scottish soap opera it was the time when they put up a load of acts to represent the UK and the viewers would phone in and pick them yeah the, the Song for Europe program I think it was, it was wasn't it yeah just to ring in yeah, it was I think was it called that or was it called Making Your Mind Up I can't remember Making Your Mind Up yes yes like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. so it, it was so it was some, you know, yeah, some big name record companies, some semi big name stars were there, and then me and Daz, these sort of urchins off the street, had rocked up with our our, our um, oddball rap record, and yeah, he did it, and the, yeah, I remember being there in the TV center watching them do it, and the crowd just went mental, and once it all died down, Jonathan Ross just said. That has to win, and the crowd went mental again. And at that point, I thought, "This is it. We're going to Eurovision," and we did. It was, it was, it was ridiculous. Back when I was young, thinking on my school days and trying to write this song. Classroom schemes and dreams, man, they couldn't save me. Cause my days were numbered when I signed down on Eurovision. Everything, everything about that was so wrong. <laughs> somehow, it became right. It's got to win. <laughs> Where was it held that year? It was Greece in that year. So um, uh, Dad's got a, Dad's got a week in Greece, and I got a weekend in Greece. Being the writer, all at <laughs> the uh, license payers' expense. And did you meet any Eurovision royalty while you're out there? A couple of um, 
divas of yesteryear uh, walk past because you know they they they'd walk around and with a film crew in tow and um, and meet the new stars. But I shamefully didn't know who any of them were. But I did meet Lordy. Now, do you remember Lordy? They were the heavy metal band who wore the horrifying gothic the, costume. The Icelandic types, are they? They were Norwegian. Norwegian. I'm ever so sorry. My apologies to my Nordic listeners. Very, very terrible. That. Yes. They had big face masks and, and claws, and, and they looked horrifying. It was like something out of a horror movie. But I met them in the hotel, and I saw them uh, in full costume in the uh, hotel swimming pool, funnily mm. enough. <laughs> Which was very exciting. I'm sure you looked great. Wait, were they swimming? They were, yes. They were in the oh. pool in full garb. Oh wow! Well, that, that's quite that's quite an insider thing, there, really. <laughs> you see some things, I tell you, when you're a minor pop star. Oh no, that's brilliant. And um, the other endeavours that you're doing as well um, is the, um, the the pound shop boys. Is that is that ah. is that very much something that's alive at the moment? I, uh, me and my uh, a friend of mine is a guy called Phil Fletcher, and he's a puppeteer who you might know as doing Hackety Dog on CBBC, the famous Normal Man, Innocent Men, Hackety Dog, Gonk. <laughs> And um, we're both big Pet Shop Boys fans. And one day he said something like, wouldn't it be funny if the Fireman Sam theme tune was in the style of Pet Shop Boys? And having a lot of time on my hands, I thought, you know what, I'll do that and it'll make him laugh. So I did it and he came around and sang it. And we made a video, which I filmed him against his sitting room wall. And he filmed me against his sitting room wall. We filmed it, in, so it took eight minutes to do. And it's, it's, it's you know, it went ballistic on, on YouTube. He's always on the scene. We did um, the Banana Splits, the Trailer La song from mm-hmm. the Banana Splits. Mm-hmm. And because Phil is an expert puppet maker and puppeteer, he made puppet replicas of the four Banana Splits. Uh, and that's had millions of views on YouTube. It's gone quite, uh, quite crackers. And that, that, that's brilliant. And um, also, you've done the um, a cover of Fireman Sam, and you've done done one in Welsh as well, which is uh, a Sam, Sam Tan, the aforementioned uh, legend yeah. that is Reese. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yeah. I, I, I implore people to download that because every, any every penny from that will go to some charities, and mm. uh, it is it is well worth it. And also, you know, well, Fireman Sam famously always was Welsh in the first place, and um, mm. the um, great mysterious Welsh theme tune that we in in, in the UK never got to hear. It's, it's quite a, quite an exclusive sound. Brilliant, and I've, re- I've really enjoyed listening uh, listening through it. And uh, one thing that's really sort of struck me with the, the the whole of your career and all of your endeavours in all the various incarnations that you have, it's all it all goes back to the web, really. It's sort of like you embraced the technology so early. It was very interesting at the start, you know, in 98, when we were doing all the teletext business, the, the hype all came from the teletext. We, we got, I actually got, a, a, as a, an aside, we actually, I remember just getting a meeting at, at Virgin or something, just because some guy had read about us on teletext. Uh, they didn't ultimately sign us, but it was a, a real sign that people were paying attention to Teletext. Mm. Well, the internet was was fascinating because everybody was talking about it, but it was still very, very small. So you could do things and people would pay attention. Nowadays, the sort of stunts that we pulled back then, we could do and nobody would even notice because they'd just get lost within the first second. Mm. Back then, we pretended that the Cuban boys were Noel Gallagher and Paul Weller who had 
inexplicably made a dance record. Uh, Noel Gallagher did end up going on MTV to deny that he was the Cuban Boys. And that was another early um, <laughs> success for us. It was, a, it was a very brief thing, but, you know, you, you, we managed to get a lot of mileage out of it, out of, a lot of press coverage out of the, Noel just saying, no, I'm not Cuban, bye. And what we, we, we faked a, an Oasis news page on, on the internet, just a bit of HTML, and sent that out. And people reported it, and, and it, so it just it, it spun off itself. This, this, this compact nature of the internet meant you could get away with Crack more ideas nowadays. You've got to be a lot more creative in your thought and put a lot more effort in as well. I mean, if you want to sort of do a become a, an internet star, you have to spend months just churning out TikToks until one goes sky high. Back then, you just did, did a fake website. Um, I enjoyed as well the satellite junkyard the from 2014. I found the um, I found the um, the sampling and 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 the music on that really impressive and uh, I, and I loved the videos as well. Did they take a lot of effort to make? Uh, it was screened in all the videos for that. You know, finding all the found footage thing it was our found footage year. That album was very much what we should have done for EMI, full of samples and full of links and and crazy things going on. But because when you're on EMI, you've got to do it properly. Mm. You know, it's it legally, it's very difficult. When we just did it ourselves and nobody really cared, we could just put out whatever we wanted and it was mm. full of illegal samples and, and all sorts of things. So I I, re- I don't recommend you listen to Eastwood, but I do recommend you listen to the Satellite Junkyard listens. It's it's far mm. better. It's, it's, it's great. I say I was terribly sorry. I say I was terribly sorry. I say I'm terribly sorry. Terribly sorry. I say I was terribly sorry. Well, I'd say it was all good. So listen to all of it. You're very kind. You're very kind. Yeah, so um, the Cuban boys are making a return at the moment. It struck me. It struck me that I've got this this intellectual property in my hands. This this a hit a hit band. I'm not doing anything with. So I I, I put together uh, last year a sort of a live set. I bought a projector. We've got videos and screens and all sorts of things going on, and. Uh, yeah, the idea is I'll I'll do a few test shows this this winter and we'll, we'll we'll aim to do some festivals next year and stuff and we'll play all the hit, ladies and gentlemen, all the hit, and, <laughs> oh, uh, and a few more surprises and things. That's brilliant. Well, I hope you're about for a, a Teletext fiftieth birthday party. Maybe we can uh, book you for that. We're in. We're in. Yeah, Our be about, fee is extremely small. It'll probably be about September, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll probably get you a can of Fanta or something for your effort. Uh, More than I deserve. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'm solidly 100% on board for this. Well, it's, that's on tape now. So, uh... It is. It's <laughs> yeah. an actual tape, listeners. He's using tape. Listeners, he's using tape like I an know. old man. I've, I've still got tapes. I've still got tapes. <laughs> uh, this one's I actually... This one's actually Carter USM. I was just wondering what sort of um, influences um, you you were listening to um, before you started, um, you know, m- m- making stuff for the Cuban Boys. What were your musical influences? It's funny you should say Carter because they were one of them. I, I also really loved the way they sounded so mm. incredibly like they were just doing it in their front rooms, mm. and yet it was they were still massive sounding records. You know, there's so there's so little to them, but they end up sounding so huge. Mm. I always really loved that. That Carter and the KLF people like that was always our um, our main. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Totems, mm-hmm. copy. Yeah, we tried to go to the KLF and uh, and failed, but you know we had a we had a go. 
Well, the KLF would think that they failed as well. So everybody, uh, I suppose, is all quite subjective. But um, yeah. no, it was just it came straight into my mind about Carter as well because uh, you know their their uses of sequences and uh, where they get samples from and all that is when when you're listening to the music back in the day, you think this stuff's so easy. But if you have a, actually have a you know have a go at dabbling with it yourself, it, it, it's it's the most difficult thing on on earth. So uh, hats off to you. I don't know if this is the case with Carter. Do you know it's the case with the KLF? They always used to say they tried to make really commercial records, really pop records, mainstream records, but couldn't quite do it. They did it slightly wrong. I think that's the case with Carter as well. It looks like they're trying to make really commercial pop records, but do it slightly wrong. And in the doing so, make something far, far more interesting and give themselves far more of a, a fan base and a career. That's what the Cube Boys always tried. We were always trying mm. to make normal pop records, but because mm. we didn't have the gear or the equipment or we didn't really know what we were doing, mm. you know, they always end up sounding a bit weird. And I think that's our unique yeah. thing. The, the, the one thing that I find challenging with the title Cuban Boys is that when I ask Alexa to play it, I actually do get Cuban music. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I've never I've never been very good at naming acts. Um, and the Cuban Boys, it was literally off the spur of the moment, top of our heads thing, just to write on a cassette to send to John Peel. Um, it sounds good. It sounds. It sort of sounds like a dance act. It's kind of commercial sounding, but then when you look into it, there's so many millions of Tokyo Cuban boys and Spanish Cuban boys and all these different Cuban boys playing Latin music from around the world. It, it, you just get lost. It's ridiculous. I mean, if I sort of say, "Oh, you know, play the Cuban boys," and and your and your hit comes up and it gets played, does any of that money come back to you or any it's a mystery? Office? It's a mystery, quite frankly. Even I mean, we didn't write. Well, we, we wrote like 12% of Habs Dance, um, officially. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how it works. Like, you, I'll get you, you a thousand streams or something. I'll make, a, I'll make two pounds or something like that. It, it's something like that. But it's it's still good. I, you know, people say, oh, you don't get paid for Spotify. And I'm saying, yes, I know it's terrible. But keep using it because the more you've streamed my stuff, the more chance it has getting on a playlist. And if it gets in the playlist, it's got more chance of getting another playlist. If it gets some more playlists, then it's got the chance of getting out into the real world, into filtering the radio and things like that. And it has the chance of really getting the snowball rolling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a necessary evil, I think. And thanks again to Ricardo Warbar for taking the time out to speak to me about Cuban Boys, the Pound Shop Boys and all these other endeavours. Before we go, it's important to say that the Cuban Boys John Pill sessions from the 13th to the 1st, 99, will be available for pre-order on vinyl and download if you visit preciousrecordingsoflondon.bandcamp.com. Please do visit Cuban Boys UK on YouTube for all of the albums that have been clipped and uh, uploaded to this podcast. And please also... Um, pay a visit to poundshopboys.bandcamp.com where you can have a chance of purchasing Sam Tan all proceeds of that go to local charities in the Swansea area so I implore you to do that as well housekeeping details just to wrap up thanks as ever to all the people that take time to um, listen to the podcast share it and tell everybody else about how good it is (laughs) and um, also to the people that do donate via Ko-fi All proceeds do go towards um, hosting the podcast and promotional materials. You know, it doesn't set me back an awful lot of money. It is a hobby, but every little does help, and it's uh, nice to know that you're appreciated out there. Bite High No Limit is presented by me, Carl Attrell, and is a Bite High No Limit production. And until next time, keep it blocky.
you're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.